Welcome to the Abundant Edge Podcast. Here we dive deep into the diverse worlds of regenerative living, permaculture, and natural building as we aspire to help you reach your highest potential for yourself, for your community, and for this beautiful planet that we share. As always, I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher, and I'm thrilled to guide you through this week's episode. So let's jump right in. Society Publishers books are so green you could eat them. We print all our books in North America, never overseas, on 100% post-consumer recycled paper. We've been a carbon neutral company since 2006. Our employees are shareholders and we are a certified B Corporation. At New Society, we care deeply about what we publish, but also about how we do business. Find out more at newsociety.com. Are you the owner or promotions manager for a regenerative business or organization looking to get your message out to a larger audience? Finding your target audience for regenerative products and services can be tough, especially while the movement is still in its infancy and awareness around the importance of ethical business still has a long way to go. If you want to tap into a network of informed and motivated people with strong environmental and community ethics who vote with their purchases, then you've come to the right place. The Abundant Edge podcast now has more than 30,000 monthly listeners around the world and is growing fast. These are listeners who are actively involved in the regeneration of our planet and are enthusiastically supporting businesses and projects that reflect their priorities. We now offer competitive sponsorship packages for single episodes and discounted rates for multiple episodes, social media campaigns, promotional videos, and more. The best part is that all your investment goes straight into making this podcast the best resource for regenerative skills education that it can be. Because of our commitment to the integrity of our message and our affiliations, this offer is only open to businesses and organizations that are as committed to regenerative work as we are. If this sounds like a good fit for you, go to the show notes for this episode to fill out the collaborator application form. We look forward to helping you reach your highest potential. My guest today, Rhonda Sherman, is the director of the Compost Learning Lab at North Carolina State University and a leading expert on vermicomposting. Rhonda travels extensively to present workshops and to consult with farmers, businesses, and institutions on the development and management of vermicomposting systems. She also organizes the annual North Carolina State Vermiculture Conference, which for 19 years has drawn participants from across the United States and around the globe. She's a co-editor of Vermiculture Technology and has written extensively about composting and vermicomposting in her role with North Carolina State University. Now, in this episode, I talked with Rhonda about her new book, The Worm Farmer's Handbook. Though the book focuses mostly on mid to large scale vermicomposting systems, we start by talking about small residential vermicomposting systems and the positive effect it can have on our lives by taking back control of our waste streams and turning it into an incredible product. We also go into detail about troubleshooting problems in the system, feeding and watering indicators, pest deterrence, and much more. Rhonda also shares some great resources from her website that you can use for free, and which I've linked to in the show notes for the episode at AbundantEdge.com. Now, before I ramble on too much, I'll turn things over to Rhonda. Hey, Rhonda, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us here today. How are you doing? Great. It's wonderful to be here. Look, I've got a ton of questions about vermicomposting that I would love to ask, but before we jump into all of those, would you tell us a little bit about what got you interested specifically in worms, breeding them, as well as making compost? Okay, well, I so the university, North Carolina State University, hired me in 1993 because the state had just passed recycling regulations. And everyone was calling this land-grant university to ask, how do we recycle? And so I was hired to answer their questions and help guide them. But what I noticed is that people were ignoring food waste. It was all about cans, paper, and bottles. So I started writing about food waste, and I put together a little publication called Worms Can Recycle Your Garbage, about how to do household vermicomposting, and it just went viral. I mean, it just had to keep being reprinted, and and um, inquiries started flowing in from all over the world. So it really changed the course of my career 
because now people in 111 countries have contacted me personally to say, hey, I really want to learn how to do vermicomposting. That is fascinating. And I love that this kind of struck a chord and resonated with so many people around the world. To back up a little bit, and before we get into sort of the how and the why of vermicomposting, go ahead and talk a little bit about uh, the food scraps and biodegradable waste problem that we have in the world. Well, it's a huge problem, and and it's um, and it causes problems that most people are unaware of. Um, most people don't realize the terrible effects that food waste has on landfills. Um, most of the public public really doesn't think about landfills, and they're not educated about it. You know, they're not provided that education in school, and so what they don't realize is that. Um, when food waste goes into the landfill, it creates methane. And methane, as we know, is one of the most powerful um, components leading to climate change. And so all this methane gets created by food waste. And um, so it's like the number three um, cause of landfills are the third human cause of methane in the world. And so it's not just air emissions, but it's also what le eventually leaks out of landfills. And food waste makes what leaks out to be more toxic because the, um, the acidic food waste can release heavy metals that are, you know, from just cans that are in um, the landfill. So lots and lots of environmental problems. And we haven't even touched on how many people wash food waste down their sinks you know, and um, that causes a real big problem, too, with killing aquatic life, and it messes up the um, wastewater treatment plants that really weren't designed to deal with all that food waste. And so how can the cultivation of worms help to deal with this waste issue? Well, we simply have to stop throwing away food waste. We have to stop putting it into landfills and stop putting it down the drain. And it's very simple. It's a simple thing to do that, that people at home can do. It's, it's really a huge act. I think sometimes people feel like, you know, oh, I, you know, I can't make much of an impact on the world, but you can. And so just having a worm bin, a compost bin in your backyard, those to process your food waste on site, you know, in your apartment, in your home, instead of relying on the city to drive around in huge trucks with um, paying for labor, paying for gas and fuel and maintenance and um, all the air emissions. You know, it's just a huge carbon footprint for your community to come and pick up your food waste. And it's so simple for you to take care of your food waste yourself and turn it into this really valuable soil amendment that will have a really powerful effect on your plants. Creating a worm composting bin is something that's accessible to just about anyone. Let's see if we can uh, address kind of how you can get that to work in a small residential context. And then let's talk about some of the ways that you can scale it up if you want to start making it for a commercial context. Okay. So, I mean, you don't have to have a bin, but um, if, if you're going, going to have it inside your home or right outside it is nice to have a bin you can make it yourself out of wood but um, you can also just buy a um, plastic um, storage bin they cost about five dollars and um, and you can just drill strategic strategically drill holes just around the top the top inch of the sides of the bin never the lid so, so you only want the holes on the sides at the very upper edges and then some holes on the bottom of the bin and you're ready to go. So anybody could do it. You know, I mean, money should not be an issue. You don't need to invest a lot of money to get started with vermicomposting. What's going to cost the most is to buy worms from a worm grower. And so what's the significance of putting those holes strategically along the side and not the top? Well, if you put them in the lid, then um, then moisture can escape. It, it will evaporate through the lid. 
Um, also, uh, if you had um, if you had the bin outside, then maybe rain would get into it. And so it's just a really bad idea to have holes in the lid of the worm bin. And all that's necessary is just to have some tiny holes around the upper sides of the bin. You don't need them all over the place. The bin needs the um, the bedding of the bin needs to be 80% moisture, which is quite a bit. And so if you have a bunch of holes all over the place, then um, too much moisture will leak out of the bin. And so is this like a double bottom configuration? Because this is something that I had built for myself back when I lived in the States. And we kind of use this secondary catchment to to get the liquid, the castings. Well, liquid and castings are two different things. <laughs> castings are what the worm excretes. So it's the worm manure, and that will always end up on the bottom of the bin. If you do things correctly, you will not have excess liquid. You won't have that liquid coming out of your bin. So is that an indication that it's overhydrated or the moisture is out of balance? Yes. And so how do you make sure that you maintain the right moisture balance? What are some indicators you can look for? Well, I, the biggest thing is to not overfeed. So a worm bin, I, I want to tell you the difference between vermicompost and compost. If you were going to sell compost, like a cubic yard of compost, you would sell it for about $30 to $35. If you were to sell a cubic yard of vermicompost, you would sell it for a minimum of $200, 200 to $800 for a cubic yard of vermicompost. That's incredible. And where is all that extra value coming from? So that's a huge difference. And so, for example, when I have for my worm bin at home, I keep that in mind. I keep in mind that the vermicompost is much more valuable than the compost. And so I'm there. And plus, my verm, my worm bin is much smaller than my compost bin. And so I just treat my worm bin with kind of more respect. <laughs> and so I just don't overfeed. I, I put in some food waste. I wait until the worms have eaten it. And then I add more. And whereas with the compost bin, you can put a lot of food waste in there. And of course, you need to have a lot of carbonaceous material. You have to have, you know, at least three times as much carbon, you know, like leaves that you would put into the compost bin. But the compost bin is more forgiving than the worm bin. So I think it's really important to have both. Because, you know, if you produce a lot of food um, waste, then it's instead of putting it all in the worm bin, you can put the excess in your compost bin. And so what are some of the visual cues that you can tell if the worms have made it through the food that you've given them already and it's all right to continue to add more? The food would disappear. Does it just turn into what looks like sort of uh, black hummus material or are there still some unbroken bits of material that would still allow you to continue feeding? Well, I mean, when you put in, say, your kitchen waste, your waste is just going to disappear. You know, it's going to be gone. Um, and, you know, where you put it, it will disappear. And then you'll notice that the castings always go to the bottom of the bin. So that's the black humus soil looking material. But that would be on the bottom. Now, when I made my own sort of small home scale composting bin, they recommended that we put a whole bunch of carbon material down at the bottom, even things like uh, old papers sort of um, cut up into strips. What is your, I guess, first steps in creating bedding and an environment inside the bin that's going to be the healthiest and most conducive for reproduction of the worms? Okay, so say you've decided to spend five dollars on a um, on a you know plastic um, storage bin with a lid, and you've drilled your holes, your small holes into the bin, and then you can take newspaper or office paper and just tear it into thin strips, and then you soak it in a bucket of water. 
So it, it can be fun. You know, if you have children, grandchildren, they, they can tear up the strips of paper and then um, soak it for 10 minutes so that the water gets absorbed into all of the paper fibers. And then you gently wring out the water, you know, so you just squeeze to get excess water out. And then you kind of, you know, pull the paper apart, kind of fluff it up as you put it into the bin. And you would fill the bin halfway full with that paper. And then you can add your worms, which you purchase from a worm grower. You need to get Isenia fetida, um, earthworms. One of their common names is red wiggler. But anyhow, you'll get that in a bag or a box, and you simply gently empty out that bag onto the top of the bedding and, and, and just step back. The worms will move into the bedding. So don't try to help them because you could accidentally hurt them because they have very um, fragile skin. But they'll go down into the bedding. Now, once they get established in that bedding, I know you mentioned that food scraps are probably the best things to, to feed them. Are there any things in food scraps or common household items that you want to make sure stay out of that vermicomposting bin uh, for the health of the worms? Yes. Um, okay. In a, you know, in a small household system, you definitely don't want to put meat, fish, grease, bones, dairy products. Okay, so you keep that out. You keep out dog and cat manure. You keep out um, citrus. So you don't want to put anything citrus into a small bin like that because it can really throw off the pH and make it too um, acidic. And so, um, but you'll notice with a small bin like that, that, that worms kind of beeline for certain foods and will avoid other foods. So um, people have said, you know, onions and garlic, they tend to avoid that. Um, but, and I wouldn't put um, like anything with sugar, you know, a strong sugary thing because that could attract ants. So in some cases, is it just a matter of not so much what they eat or don't, but what can be attracted like the meat products or the fats or the sugars which could uh, attract competing insects and and fungus perhaps yeah and the, the meat and dairy that could attract rats and other carnivorous animals so give me an idea about how long it takes for them to process a certain amount of food and how long should you expect before you have finished vermicompost Okay, so in a small bin like that, um, when the worms first arrive, they are not, they won't be hungry because um, they've just endured some kind of a journey, you know, um, where either they were delivered to you in the mail or you went and picked it up and, and it bounced around in your car. Um, and so they're kind of shaken up. And also you've just introduced them to a new environment that they're unfamiliar with. So sometimes worms want to get out of that environment. Um, I haven't personally experienced that, but um, I've, I know that many people do have that issue. And so if you do, then um, you want to keep light and outsource an out, outside source of light on the bin for um, maybe a few days. So that um, so what that means is just you know have some kind of light shining uh, um, in the room that the bin is in for um, so that the worms, their um, light bothers them, and so they'll stay in the bin. And after they're kind of forced to stay in the bin like that, they'll adapt to the bin and then stay there. And so as far as eating, worms will eat about a quarter to a third of their weight per day. And so, and this is, this is true. This is not something you find on the internet. <laughs> and so, um, so anyway, that's the case. And so, but you know, they're not, they're not machines. They're like us. We tend to eat more one day and less the next. So, you know, it's not a, um, mechanical 
thing where you're like, okay, well, let's see. I have this this many worms and I've given them this much food. And so it should be finished, you know, because it's, you know, that's what the math tells us. But we have to remember that we're dealing with living beings. Now, so we've talked a little bit about the food that they like and how to keep that in balance. What about moisture? You mentioned that they require quite a high moisture content. And, you know, I mentioned the worm bin that I had had before had sort of a spout that you could collect moisture at the bottom from. Um, But how do you make sure that the moisture is maintained at a balance that they're going to thrive in? Okay, so what's key is that how you um, soak the bedding before you put it into the worm bin. So like I said, you're going to soak the bedding in clean water and then you're going to squeeze the excess liquid out. And then, you know, but if you squeeze paper, you know, you don't want to just throw a ball of paper into the bin. So that's why I said you you pull it apart, but you put it in there. And by soaking it for 10 minutes, it means that all of the paper fibers are saturated. And so ideally that you shouldn't have to add more moisture. And you never, ever pour water into a bin, even if you've seen it on YouTube. So, you know, because some people say, oh, just, you know, tear up the paper, put it in the bottom of the bin, and then pour water on it. Well, you can't control, you can't control it that way. And so this whole idea of having spouts on bins is ridiculous because you really should not produce that excess liquid so you you just put the you know you've soaked the bedding for 10 minutes it should be good to go and you really shouldn't need to add any moisture but every time you open the bin it will release a little bit of moisture and so you may find that the top of the paper becomes kind of dried out and so you can take a mister you know like a plant mister and just mist water to dampen the top of the bedding and so it shouldn't need any more than that if if you notice that it starts to dry out there's there's uh just a mist well, should I mean, be adequate drying out, but you, you just you always just mist the water do not pour water in there gotcha you know and and by having a lid with no holes in it it creates a little bit of a, um, it becomes kind of like a terrarium, I guess, um, you know, where the water will evaporate a little bit. When you open your worm bin, there will be a little bit of liquid on the inside of the lid because of the evaporation taking place. But because the lid, lid is solid and doesn't have holes and the water is not escaping, then it will just rain back down onto the bedding, and that helps. That and we're just talking about small bins here, with, um, you know, with lids. We're not talking about larger systems like what I wrote about in my book. Right. So again, with the smaller systems, if you've got one of these bins, we've we've balanced out the the feeding and the moisture. Where should you store your bin in the most conducive environment for the health of your worms? Well, ideally, it would be in a location that is about 70 degrees Fahrenheit. So that's when the worms are most comfortable, which means they'll eat more and reproduce more and um, produce castings. So 70 is the best, but you you just have to kind of do the, the best that you can. So, yeah, that's ideal if you can keep it at 70. So if you have it indoors and you can keep the room 70 degrees, that's great. Um, I tend to keep my worm bins outdoors. And so, of course, the temperature is fluctuating. And so, you know, I I just deal with that. Um, Keeping it in the shade, you never, ever want to put a worm bin in the sun because, you know, then things can get heated up. The worms have are sensitive to temperatures. And so, that's why I've written about that extensively, and you can find um, free publications on my website um, at composting.ces.ncsu.edu. So you'll find that um, 
you know, when you go to that website, you click on vermicomposting, and we're talking about households right now. So you would click on four households, and then you'll find um, my publication, Worms Can Recycle Your Garbage. Nice. Now let's switch context a little bit because you did write extensively about this in your book. How do you scale up this production so to make enough that's actually significant? Okay. And I'm glad you said scale up because I really do recommend that if people are interested in getting into the business of vermicomposting or say you have a farm or a community garden or, you know, you're producing a lot more organic material than what you could put into a small worm bin, I do recommend that you start with a small worm bin so that you get used to worm husbandry. So we talked about working out the balance of moisture. By having a small worm bin, you'll be able to observe how the moisture reacts in the bin, how it cycles, and you'll be able to... um, you know, you'll, you'll notice how fast the food is being consumed and how fast the um, worm castings are being produced. So you really kind of get the hang of earthworm husbandry by having a small bin. But so then you decide to scale up and there are all sorts of again, you don't have to have a bin. You know, some people have outdoor windrows or piles. Um, depending on your climate and um, but a lot of people have bins and some people if they tend to have um, you know like a garage or a basement or um, maybe they have some old farm buildings on, on site those are all good places to put worm bins to keep them sheltered out of the sun and rain and um, cold weather or super hot weather and so give us an example of your own operation, how you've uh, scaled up the systems to produce or, or consult with other people as well who've been doing the same to produce a significant amount of compost that you can use on a garden. Okay. So, so yes, I, I started with a small bin about 25 years ago. And, um, and then, you know, I'm here at a university and so I had use of a laboratory where I had seven worm bins, seven of the seven different styles of worm bins, because you can, of course, buy them commercially, too. So, you know, I had can of worms and worm factory and, you know, just a variety of bins where I would observe how they responded to the food that I was, you know, just the systems, you know, so so it was kind of nice to do that. And then now I have um, an acre or two owned by the university, but it's farmland. And so I have what I call the compost learning lab. And on it, I have 14 different types of composting systems. So we're talking about, you know, thermophilic composting. And then I have the worm barn, <laughs> which is a 30 by 40 foot building um, that has, you know, like, it's hard to describe, but it is not a solid enclosed building. I don't have any electricity. So of course I don't have any heating or cooling and there are open spaces where air just flows into this building. So I don't have the best um, environment. So if I were to become a commercial vermicomposter, I would not use the building that I have. Um, But what I do have is, is great for showing people how to do vermicomposting. So I have 12 different types of worm bins in my worm barn, ranging from small household bins. Um, so the, you know, the, the small $5 bins that I adapted into worm bins and then several um, commercially purchased worm bins. And then I have, medium scale like the worm wigwam and oscar bin and then i have a 40 square foot bin that's a continuous flow through reactor so it's eight feet by five feet and um people really like seeing you know the differences in sizes and so the active vermicomposting that i have going on there are in 
plastic macro bins. So these are used by, I think, primarily by farmers for after they pro, um, they harvest vegetables and fruits. You, they put them in these sturdy, um, macro bins that are about 40 ish inches on each side. <coughs> and they have holes, um, in, you know, in the bottom and the sides. And so when I saw it, I thought, wow, this would make a good worm bin. And it has been a very good worm bin. So I have two of those in my, in my worm barn. And I'm feeding uh, dairy manure to the worms. And I've also seen it at some other sites. So I know other vermicomposters are using the macro bins. So among all of these different bin styles that you've had the opportunity to sort of explore and work with over time, which configuration is your favorite and why? Well, really, I mean, the, the, the best is a continuous flow through a reactor because the worm manure will always go to the bottom of a bin. And that means that you have to use a shovel to get to it, <laughs> you know? And so, but with a continuous flow through reactor, it has a grate on the bottom that's either four inches by two inches or two inches by two inches. And there's a breaker bar that is activated by either motors or a hand crank and it will shave off about an inch of vermicompost off the bottom of this bin. And so it saves labor for harvesting because you don't have to dig it out with a shovel. Oh, yeah, that's clever. And so you don't have to worry about any of the worms coming out with the castings in the bottom. They just migrate their way up where the food source is? Yes. Worms, if, if a system is operating correctly, you know, if it has the right moisture balance um, and everything's, you know, operating well, the worms will stay in about the top four inches of a worm bin and they move up to eat. So, for example, I mentioned that I'm feeding dairy manure. And so about once a week, I, um, about an inch of dairy manure is applied to the top of both of my macro bins. And the worms come up and eat it. And, you know, this dairy manure, it's, you know, kind of chunky, you know, chunky clods. But after a week, I can tell that the um, manure has been processed by the worms because it creates what we call in the vermicomposting industry, the pool table effect. So you put in this chunky feedstock and then after the worms have processed it, then it'll be flat like a pool table, and then you'll know it's time to feed the worms again. Oh, wow, that's a good visual cue so that you don't have any guesswork. Right, yep. So let's talk about some of these byproducts of worm farming. You mentioned how much more valuable and nutritious uh, worm casting and worm compost is compared to conventional compost. What are the elements inside of this material that make it so valuable for a garden? Well, it's so vermicompost is just teeming with with microorganisms, just a variety of species and really high numbers of microorganisms and that are beneficial to plants. And also vermicompost contains humic acids and plant growth hormones such as gibberellins and cytokinins and auxins. And those really have a phenomenal effect on the plants. And they also contain nutrients that are in forms readily taken up by plants. And it's also fully stabilized because it's been ingested by an animal and it comes out the other end. And so you don't have to cure it like compost and it's not going to burn plants like immature compost can do. And so you don't have to use this at full concentration, isn't that right? Because of all the added nutrients and microorganisms in it, oftentimes it's sort of diluted with other either conventional compost or, or perhaps sometimes potting soil mix? Yes, because actually a little bit goes a really long way. And so <clears throat> a lot of plant, um, a lot of um, 
scientific studies have been done with plants. And usually it shows that 10 or 20% by volume vermicompost is all that's needed to produce this really phenomenal effect on plants. So it increases rates of germination and growth, flowering and fruiting, and crop yields are higher. And it improves root development and stress tolerance. Which um, So there's decreased transplant shock. And also, many, many studies show there are decreased attacks by plant pathogens, parasitic nematodes, and insect pests. Wow, that's incredible. So it's not just feeding your garden, it's actually protecting it as well. Yes. And yes, so yeah. you mentioned that only about 20% per volume is what's necessary. What do you make up the rest of that 80% with in, in your recommendation? Oh, I don't want to recommend because, you know, it really depends on the plant's needs and the soils. And so, you know, I can't just make a blanket statement about that. But, um, you know, you definitely having some compost in the mix is, is good. But um, otherwise, I think it's important for people to talk to their local cooperative extension agent who, who's familiar with they're more familiar with their soils and they can talk to them about making, um, you know, the right soil mix. Mm, that's good advice. So you mentioned earlier that you've had tons of people reach out to you from all over the world since you started to write about cultivating worms. Everything from questions and interest in vermicomposting and what have been some of the most frequently asked questions and concerns from the people that you've come into contact with? Well, I mean, you know, so they're all over the world. And so people are dealing with waste, you know, so we're talking animal manures and, um, and crop residues and food waste and, um, spoiled grain and coffee grounds and brewery waste and cardboard and scrap paper, just a variety of things. And so they want to do something beneficial with it and restore their soils. So, um, you know, for example, the, the U.S. military contacted me um, from Afghanistan and they said, you know, here we are over here and we're, we've got food waste and we have hue manure and we want to do the right thing and not burn it, you know, instead um, do something to recycle it back into the soils. So they were interested in vermicomposting. Um, so people all over the world, um, you know, a lot of people, they, they don't have toilets like we do. And so they have a lot of um, human waste that needs to be processed. And so vermicomposting is playing a big role in that around the world as well. So it really depends. And, and, you know, really vermicomposting is, you know, like households, like what I have been talking about. But then, you know, there's medium scale. And I mentioned that, you know, that can be community gardens or small farms or schools that want to take their cafeteria waste and vermicompost it. And then there are just some really huge operations. Um, and I really enjoyed writing profiles about them in my book. And so I did talk about, you know, I mentioned all of these different places, you know, there's vermicomposting taking place at um, hospitals and schools and um, restaurants, grocery stores, military bases, paper mills, universities, prisons, all sorts of people, you know, anybody who generates um, food waste. Um, and so I really enjoyed profiling them because there are just some enormous vermicomposting operations taking place in Mexico and in New Zealand and just all, all over the world. But the country that I think I hear from the most is India. And what something that I am most um, like very happy about is that Vermicomposting is playing a huge role in giving um, women uh, financial independence in countries where it's, you know, a struggle for them to survive. So that's taking place in India and Guatemala and, you know, 
other places around the world. Yeah, I know initiatives like that are are increasingly popular here in Guatemala where I live. And it's it's really inspiring to see these groups take on something that can have such a beneficial impact for our environment, but also bring up the economic value of these types of products while giving access to to women and and impoverished communities to to be producing something of such high value. I was really happy to hear that the military had gotten in touch with you because that's not an organization that we normally associate with making environmentally sound decisions. So it's it's inspiring to see how this shift is starting to affect even um, associations and organizations that we wouldn't um, we wouldn't expect that from. Well, and actually, military bases here in the United States are many of them are composting or vermicomposting their food waste. Because think about it, you you just have thousands of people who are housed on these bases. And, you know, they have dining halls for the troops and they have families living there. And so a lot of food waste is being generated. And so it behooves them to save money and do the right thing by choosing environmentally beneficial alternatives instead of, you know, because it's expensive for them to haul food waste to a landfill. And so it can be cheaper for them to to recycle it right on site through vermicomposting or composting. And then they end up with this beneficial product that they can use to restore the soils um, and grow food right on the military bases. So, yeah, it's happening and it makes sense. That's really encouraging. And I know there's one story in particular from the book that you have in the intro when you got an unexpected call from someone who you thought was a farmhand. You want to tell me about that? (laughs) Yes. Well, as you can imagine, since I've heard from people in 111 countries that pretty much daily I receive emails from people in other countries and it makes my job very interesting. And uh, so anyway, I I opened an email and it was from someone in Argentina who was at a farm and they wanted to um, scale up to a large vermicomposting system. And so, um, you know, I just, it was a very busy period. Well, I'm always busy, <laughs> but I think this was exceptionally busy because he started emailing me pretty much every day, you know, so we had this dialogue going on, but I just had it in my mind that he was a farm worker on a really large farm in Argentina. And it turned out that he was billionaire Doug Tompkins, who founded the North Base. <laughs> and Imagine so, that. Yeah. And so, you know, it's really um, so yeah, so after a couple of weeks of emailing, he, he said he was coming to visit um, Duke University Medical Center. And then I thought, oh, no, this poor farm worker must have a, a terrible, um, a fatal disease or something for his boss to send him all the way to, <laughs> to Duke <laughs> for, for medical care. And so, um, so anyway, I met him and... Um, and was shocked to find out that he had founded and a spree and he was the largest um, private owner of land in the world. So he had, he had, um, you know, cashed out of the North face and a spree and had taken his money to South America. And he had purchased two, 2.5 million acres in Argentina and Chile and he had um, restored the, the land. It was amazing what he did because, you know, he was buying these huge ranches where, you know, the soil had just been destroyed through ranching. And he turned them into beautiful organic farms and created national parks and then gave the national parks to the governments. And so it was in the news a few months ago about how there's, I think like an 1800 mile trail through Chile through connecting national parks that were created by Doug Tompkins, Doug and his wife, Chris Tompkins and their foundation. 
So I went down to visit them and spent, I think, 16 days down there. And it, it was just amazing and really overwhelming. But he was very committed that every one of his organic farms had, they were doing composting and vermicomposting. It was very impressive. Man, that's so encouraging because we hear so many stories about, you know, people with immense wealth or extreme influence and power sort of perpetuating the the destructive cycles that we see so often in our society and in our culture that when somebody rediverts those those resources into something so productive, so, so positive, uh, I think it can really have a major downstream effect to inspire people to do similar things with the resources that they have themselves. That's so encouraging to hear. Yeah, yeah. He was very inspiring. And I'm using past tense because, unfortunately, he passed away a few years ago. So, Well, certainly that's a, a respectable legacy to leave behind. <laughs> so it, his foundation is still there, and they love to have interns come and work on the organic farms. And so you can um, look up uh, Doug Tompkins' foundation, and if anybody is interested in getting incredible experience on organic farms in South America. Nice. So do you have any other um, information that you'd like to share with my audience on not only where they can find and purchase your book, but other resources to learn more about vermicomposting in particular um, and and how they can contact you? Okay. So since, um, since I said that I've accidentally become world famous for vermicomposting. Um, most of the information on my website is about vermicomposting, although I have written quite a bit about composting as well, and I have extensive experience with composting, and so I incorporated that into my book, too, because I do encourage pre-composting. Um, if you're going to sell vermicompost, I think it there are just a lot of good reasons for doing pre-composting. And so um, so my book that just came out in November is called The Worm Farmer's Handbook, Mid to Large-Scale Vermicomposting for Farms, Businesses, Municipalities, Schools, and Institutions. And it's published by Chelsea Green Publishing, and it's available from them and anyone who sells books. So you can, you know, whoever you like to buy books from, hopefully it's a local independent bookstore. But if you prefer, you know, Barnes and Noble or um, Amazon, it's sold by Target, Walmart. I mean, it's crazy. You just, you know, Google the Warm Farmer's Handbook and it'll pop up for sale in different places. So, um, but this there's just so much information in there that um, is really valuable. And so I encourage you to, to read this. And, and it's kind of a fun read, too. It's interesting. I agree. I got a lot out of it myself. <laughs> yeah, I use my own voice for this, you know, because at the university, I use third person voice. But this was my book and my voice and my experience. And so I really enjoyed that. And it came through in the book. Lots of colored pictures and, and just seeing operations all over the world. Like, um, you know, there's a woman owned vermicomposting operation in Afghanistan. And so I've got photos in there and, you know, just all sorts of interesting things and compost or vermicomposting of cafeteria food waste at schools in the United States that hopefully will inspire people to do that. And speaking of schools, also, when you click on vermicomposting on my website, you'll see for schools. And you can click on that, and I have information for schools to get um, to get started with vermicomposting. And I also have a curriculum. So anybody who works with children, whether it be preschool, regular school, um, scouts, church groups, homeschooling, Anybody can use this free curriculum, and it says that it's for fifth graders, but we just said that because it's aligned with fifth grade standards in North Carolina, but actually it can be adapted for any age child, so from, you know, young children on up through 12th grade. And that is a fantastic resource, and you said that's available through your website? 
Yeah, so all this free information on my website. And and then the largest category for the vermicomposting, you click on for businesses, farms, um, what is it, businesses, farms, and, and institutions, and municipalities. And so there's a lot of information there because that's what I get the most um, the most people contact me. Uh, they're interested in um, converting large amounts of waste into vermicompost or making money from vermicompost, creating vermicompost. So I have the most information there. So you'll find raising earthworms successfully. So that's free to download. I think it's like 14 pages or something. And, um, you know, so that gives you a, a an overview of how to get into mid to large scale vermicomposting. But my book has obviously so much more information. So, you know, if you're serious about it, that it would be wise to buy the book. <laughs> nice. Well, yeah, that's such a fantastic resource. And I'll be sure to link to that on all of the, the show notes for this podcast episode on our website as well. Rhonda, it was such a pleasure talking to you. I really got a lot out of this and um, especially the troubleshooting part because I had had sort of mixed results with my own home vermicomposting bins in the past. I definitely have a clear vision going forward now. Oh, good. That's great. Yeah, I really encourage people to, you know, read the Worms Can Recycle Your Garbage. Just read it two or three times before you get started with vermicomposting because, you know, it's simple, but there are a lot of ways things can go wrong. And so, you know, it's just good to be mindful. And I do have a troubleshooting guide within that, within Worms Can Recycle Your Garbage. So you can also check that and see if, you know, how you can tweak your worm bin. Perfect. Well, Rhonda, thank you so much for taking the time today. I'll definitely be contacting you again in the future. And we, hopefully we can do a follow-up interview perhaps in a later season. That sounds great. I really enjoyed it. All right. Well, thanks again. And you have a great rest of your day. All right. Thank you, Oliver. Bye-bye now. Bye. Thank you so much for tuning into this week's episode. As always, you can find all the show notes for this and all other episodes at AbundantEdge.com by clicking on the podcast tab in the navigation bar. On the website, you can also find a whole range of educational articles, as well as the services we offer from design and consulting to education. While you're there, don't forget to take a look at the courses and workshops we offer, which are all designed to empower you to take back control of your life by giving you the skills to produce your own food, manage landscapes regeneratively, build your own homes and structures with natural materials, and most importantly, to dream ever bigger about the highest potential that you could achieve for yourself, your community, and the planet that we share. I'm very grateful to all of you who have added comments and send feedback to me. Your contributions help this to be the conversation and dialogue that it's meant to be. For anyone else interested, you can email me and the whole team directly at info at abundantedge.com. And all of your feedback makes these episodes and interviews so much more engaging and help me to give you the information and content that you want. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you again in next week's session.